This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Welcome to the Scandal of Reading podcast. In this season, we are discussing the fruits of the Spirit. In this episode in particular, I discuss love. By discussing Revelations of Divine Love by Julian of Norwich, and I discuss the book with the medievalist Grace Hammond, the author of Jesus Through Medieval Eyes. Grace and I relish this opportunity to get to dive deeply into Julian's work, but trying to keep the conversation in only 30 minutes means that we did not go as deep as we would have wanted to. I encourage all of you to pick up a copy of Julian Norwich's Revelations of Divine Love. For years, I have used Elizabeth Spearing's translation published by Penguin and recently have discovered Father John Julian's translation with Paraclete Press, which I highly recommend. Now enjoy this conversation about love with Claude Acho and Austin Carty, as well as the interview with Grace Hammond. Welcome to the Scandal of Reading podcast. Today we are talking about the first fruit of the Spirit, which is love, probably one of the most um, overused and misused words that come from scripture, because I, I'm going to quote Percy, I can't help myself. So Percy talks about um, words having worn away their edges, like a well-worn poker chip, right? It loses its meaning over time, the more we, we use it. And I think love is definitely one of those words. So I want to talk a little bit about where we get our ideas from love outside of scripture and how we can better understand the word itself. But I want to start with scripture. So this is from Romans 13. Uh, this year, my Bible reading is all from the message. I try to tra change translations every year. So don't fault me, all those who do all different translations. I do too. This is just the one I'm doing this year, so I can hear it differently. And this is from 13 verses 8 through 10. Eugene Peterson translates it this way. Don't run up debts, except for the huge debt of love you owe each other. When you love others, you complete what the law has been after all along. The law code, such as don't sleep with another person's spouse, don't take someone's life, don't take what isn't yours, don't always be wanting what you don't have, and any other don't you can think of, finally adds up to this. Love other people as well as you do yourself. You can't go wrong when you love others. When you add up everything in the law code, the sum total is love. Hmm. So that's truth. That's the authority. That's the apostle. But how have we learned this kind of love better through fiction? Ooh, what a good question. Claude, do you want to take a run at it? Yeah. I was thinking about this, and I really struggled to come up with a novel or something in fiction that has taught me about love in a positive sense. I think I've learned a lot about love in a negative sense from a lot of uh, a lot of my favorite novels. So as people uh, struggle to love, uh, think they're loving, but they're actually not, these are the things that have sort of uh, really, uh, really formed me in terms of, you know, literature in, in this particular Fruit of the Spirit. Um, yeah, you know, so I, I, I go to one, what, what is love, right? Um, I think just starting there, you know, we're drawn toward, you mentioned it, Jessica, like we just we use our language in these in sort of um, uncritical ways, you know, and so like, you know, I love I love my kids. I love my friends. I love my church. I love Jesus. And I and also love. Yeah, yeah. And I also love like the the frozen humbow at Trader Joe's. And I love, you know, uh, LaCroix or what like whatever. It's just it's all the same. You know, mm -hmm. uh, there's like there's the there's no distinction that's really actually being made there. So everything sort of gets flattened to like, hey, it's something that I enjoy or it's something that makes me feel good or, you know, what I actually love is the feeling I get when this happens. So it's really just, it's primarily about me. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's not actually sort of this self giving this, um, this, this laying down that then lifts up all, which I think is much closer to the biblical idea of love. Um, 
particularly thinking of uh, First John, you know, God is love. And well, how is this displayed? Well, it's it's that he's given his son as the atoning sacrifice, not only for us, but for the whole world. So I think about, um, yeah, all of those many layers in the conversation about love. And then if I were to lay out sort of one literary example, uh, I, I would turn to the, the picture of Dorian Gray uh, by Oscar Wilde. And this was a really formative book for me. Uh, I read this first time around in high school, uh, around 18, just just being like, hey, I want to try to, uh, I just want to try to read all the books I'm supposed to read, you know, and uh, and it really captivated me. But I think it's a sort of a, a, an, an anti-example uh, of love, particularly in, in relationships. So uh, follows a young, uh, handsome, beautiful man, uh, Dorian Gray. And he has a mentor friend, uh, Lord Henry, who who really does not actually love him or care mm-hmm. for him because he leads him into um, into sort of hedonism. He gives him advice uh, that leads him on a path of destruction and you know self corruption, and uh, he just you know blows his life up. Um, and what Lord Henry is actually interested in, he's interested in knowledge and experience, right? So very similar to uh, the Corinthians and uh, think of First Corinthians eight, where uh, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So Lord Henry just wants his own way. He wants to sort of conduct an experiment, see what it's like to see this young, this young, you know, vibrant person just kind of uh, live by experience and. It seems like a relationship of love, you know, at least to Dorian, but it, but it really isn't. It's not love. It's not friendship. It's all built on self. So that's the example that I think of. But I, I'm hoping some of y'all have some positive examples of, of love through literature, because the best I could think of that it impacted me was really that. And, and that's, a, that's an anti-example in a lot of ways. So I, lo- I love that. And that's a- Do you love it really? Or do you like it? Or do you respect it? <laughs> Or do you appreciate it? Do you admire it? I do all of those things all at the same time, all, all covered okay, good, good. by this, this very, very, very specific word love. Um, no, I, I, I really do. Um, and I would, I hadn't thought of Dorian Gray in, in that way. Um, the, the first books that come to mind for me, I mean, I, I do mention Invisible Man, Ralph Ellison's book, in my book, The Pastor's Bookshelf, about uh, in a chapter called Learning to Love. Um, uh, but other books that that I've had an experience of having a, a kind of more profound insight into love, I uh, recently had one with rereading after many years, Love in the Time of Cholera by mm. Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And when I first read that book uh, as a much younger man, you know, now that I'm so old and mature in seasons, <laughs> uh, you know, the 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 character of um of uh, Florentino, I think is his name. It's been a minute since I've read it again. And for listeners, if any of y'all are are like me, and I wonder if y'all are this way, some folks think that just because I read a lot, that means I have this great recall of characters' names and like plot points. Oh my goodness. I read a lot and remember nothing. That's why these questions are so hard. I was like, what have I read? Have I read any books? Yeah. So, you know, um, but um uh, and you can tell that I haven't gone to, to to try to track the source here. This is coming really from the top of the dome and the heart because I'm I'm pulling names from as best I can recall here. But I know the story well. Um, I the the character who represents just passionate love, the the sense of just um, of of what we culturally often think of when we think of romantic love, the the, the passionate element, the the euphoria, the um, the feeling, and you know, as I read this as a younger person, the, the marriage that she was in uh, with, I think his name was Dr. Huguenot Urbino, as I mm-hmm. recall it, uh, it just seemed dry, you know, and, and, and obviously you're, 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 you're drawn to the, the passionate part. Mm-hmm. And he waited all this time and this was where her, her longings really were. And, um, but I went and reread it and, there was something so beautiful about the just faithfulness and commitment of their marriage and their relationship. And while she did have these deeper stirrings uh, for Florentino, who she'd known from her youth, uh, and while that was never the way that Marquez really would have described for her her feelings toward her marriage with her husband, the what bubbled up out of love there, out of a sense of faithfulness and commitment, uh, it it was beautiful. 
And and so it doesn't then mean that I suddenly think that now this one's better than the other. I, I bring this one up to say that I feel like it gives this rich picture of 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 love as being, you know, uh, uh, manifold in the way that it, it presents. And, you know, I think that it's it's helpful to reread that book with an appreciation for the, the marital relationship there in a culture of ours that pumps out rom-coms and, right. and, and every message is about, you know, the, this feeling. And it's not to dismiss feeling, feeling significant, you know, right. and, and, in, and in rich romantic relationships or rich uh, kind of uh loving relationships, hopefully that's going to be there, but it's not, it, it can't be expected to be constant. And, you know, Jessica, you referenced Kierkegaard in one of our recent conversations. You know, Kierkegaard talks about having that the, the, uh, the night of, of resignation, K-N-I-G-H-T, you know, uh, finds him or herself, you know, it's a himself in his text, but, you know, finds him or herself surprised by joy. And that's something that comes through, uh, that movement from being the aesthete, you know, to being the person of duty or commitment. Mm-hmm. And that's something our culture needs to rediscover, yeah. which is that that there's a real richness in love that stays and is faithful. And that doesn't have to be in kind of a romantic partnership either. The long term friendship that somebody sustains mm-hmm. through the difficulties of just remaining friends over a long period of time. There's something that bubbles up there that you cannot short circuit. It only comes from sticking. And mm-hmm. so uh, loving the time of Kohler rereading that gave me a deeper appreciation for uh, just how rich and expansive the idea of love is. And just really quickly, another one is that, um, when I first read the Brothers Karamazov years ago yeah. and came upon the scene of um, the woman who is confessing to Father Zosima that she sometimes thinks about becoming a nun. Yeah. And that in those moments, she has this euphoria of how, how great she feels inside. But then mm. she says, but what if those whose wounds I was washing did not meet me with thanks and gratitude yeah. immediately? Yeah. What if they started complaining about me to their superiors? And she mm-hmm. says, I come with horror to the realization that the only thing that can dissipate my love is ingratitude. In short, yeah. I'm a hired servant. I expect my repayment at once. That is love with love. Otherwise, I'm incapable of loving anyone. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, I've quoted that one several times because that one came yeah. really quickly to the tongue uh, in a way that those characters' names didn't. But I had never honestly really thought about it that way, about mm-hmm. some of my self-serving yeah. motives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can then go down a real Kantian uh you can get stuck in a corner there thinking like, well, gracious, do I have any motivations that aren't self-driven? Mm. And is it possibly good if there's any selfish taint to it? And, 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 and yes, there, 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 there can be, but it's, it's, uh, it's, as C.S. Lewis says, it's not a problem to receive thanks mm-hmm. for doing something well. The problem is if you are only doing it for that reason. Um, and there's, there's an important distinction in there, but anyway, I had never really thought about that was that, that was kind of a, a, an enlightenment moment for me, um, when it comes to, uh, the way that we can manipulate love and, and, and love for self-serving purposes. Yeah. So that's Madame Koklikov and okay. the lady of little faith. And Zosima draws that distinction between two different kinds of love. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about love that is desirous of immediate gratification, the way uh, the lady of little faith is talking about or love that is patience and hard work. Right. So there's this kind of the, this active love that you must practice and that it becomes its, its own lifelong knowledge mm-hmm. and craft mm-hmm. um, that they talk about in that passage. So brothers Karamazov, I think would be like the highest that you could go to if you want a positive example of love, Claude. I'm going to just list a bunch more because we're going to actually dig deeper going into Julian mm-hmm. of Norwich with Grace about what love is and how this medieval writer can teach us about love. Um, but some of the sources I, th- I thought of when Austin was talking, Sense and Sensibility, right? Mm. The, the commitment versus the passion, but also the necessity of both. Um, I also thought of Disney films <laughs> because mm. recently they have done such a good job. There's, you know, all the, for me, the Disney films in the beginning, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty are not strong on this. And um, even my kids see through it in a different way than I did at that age. But, you know, my 10 year old is like, ugh, 
she only met him one time and she's letting him kiss her, you know? Mm. <laughs> uh, whereas we have frozen, real mm. true act of love is the selfless sacrifice of one's life. Or in Kanto, right, where the man lays down his life for his children and it produces a light and produces miracle. Uh, like these mm -hmm. are way better examples of love than I feel like yeah. early Disney films do. So there, there are a lot of stories out there the medievals to me are some of the best on this. Um, they had such an idea that the loves we find here were pointing us to the love of God. And so when you read some of these medieval stories, Julian is, is one we'll talk about, but Marie de France, those are gorgeous. She takes this chivalric love idea and just subverts it and says, it's not the love of the knight and the damsel in distress that matters. It's whether or not they act in accordance with scripture in a way that leads them towards the love of God. And of course, mm. this is Dante takes off, you know, with his love of Beatrice, moving him towards the love of, of Mary and then the love of Christ. And so literature to me has taught me love. I would say mm -hmm. that one of the primary things that I have learned from literature is really deepening my understanding of what the scriptures are talking about and seeing it in all of these different stories. So, so thanks guys for helping unpack that. And hopefully we've given listeners a long list of books to turn to. I'm going to just add one more. You're going to about to hear an interview with Grace. Hammond and I discussing Julian of Norwich, and this really is a theologian of love. So stay tuned. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your master's or certificate program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu slash admit. Welcome to the Scandal of Reading podcast. I am so excited to have Grace Hammond here. Grace actually invited me onto her podcast, Old Books with Grace. Was it a year or so ago? Mm -hmm, that's right. And that was such a fun conversation that when I was trying to figure out, you know, who do I really want to bring on the podcast to talk about a medieval book about love, who better than someone who just wrote a book about medieval. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I asked Grace to come on today and talk about Julian of Norwich's Revelations of Divine Love. This is one of the books that taught me the most about love. And so I very much want to talk about it as we're considering all these fruits of the spirit in this, this season, this year. Um, Grace, could you just introduce yourself to the listeners and especially talk about the book that you have coming out? Sure. I'd love to. Um, I'm Grace Hammond. Uh, I have a doctorate in literature from Duke, um, and I specialize in Middle English poetry and theology, contemplative writing in particular, which Julian mm -hmm. is. And so um, that's my background. And then I, in uh, October, October 31st, to be precise, I have a book coming out with Zondervan Reflective called Jesus Through Medieval Eyes, Beholding Christ with the Artists, Mystics, and Theologians of the Middle Ages. And I'm really excited that's coming out. And there's a lot of Julian in it, so yeah. <laughs> befittingly. But... Well, and I befitting, I like that, befittingly. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's the reason that you were brought to mind. I got to read the book early. I got to read the advanced reader copy, and it is so good. You know, there's so many books coming out all the time. It's hard for readers to know, like, which ones to actually grab. Uh, this is one that I would highly recommend that people grab. And there, there's just not enough knowledge about medieval faith. Even I just finished Femina by, um, is it Janina Ramirez? Yeah, yeah. I haven't read it yet. Is it good? Yeah, it was. But what you notice is that, I mean, she's not faithful. And this podcast is primarily for people who are believers. Of course, everyone's invited, but um, we're talking openly about faith and the, the things we discovered about God through this podcast. And she just doesn't have any pegs for that. You know, mm -hmm, so when mm -hmm. she's talking about Julian, even she just can't understand Julian's life or like being an anchorist or, you know, when she's talking about Marjorie totally. Kemp, she's like, Oh, Marjorie was such a celebrity and enjoyed celebrity culture. And I'm like, wait, saints are not like, that's not celebrity culture. <laughs> so just stuff like that. There's just yeah, weird parallels. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I think the medievals are, are some you can only understand, really understand from within the faith because everything looks so weird. So maybe that's a good starting off point to talk about Julian and her life 
that yes. would look weird to other people. Do you mind just setting up who is Julian of Norwich? Why are we talking about her today? Just anything that helps readers contextualize what we're going to discuss. For sure. And, and thank you so much for your kind words about the book. I really appreciate that. But um, Julian, okay, first of all, we don't even know if that's her real name. Uh, let's start there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so on the night of the 13th of May in 1373, and some people think the 8th of May because the manuscript's a little hard to read, but um, the 13th of May, Julian of Norwich was a 30-year-old woman who was uh, really, really ill. And she thought she was dying. And uh, she that night experienced a series of what she called showings, which were visions and sights and sounds and words even um, given to her by God. And she um, had this wild experience that changed her, changed her life in this uh, in in her sick bed, and she ended up spoiler alert recovering <laughs> and not dying. And she wrote this book out of it called, um, and it has different titles. If you get confused, because they're all editorial titles, so mm-hmm. sometimes it's Divine Revelations of Love, or sometimes it's the Showings, um, or just a Revelation of Divine Love. So um, she wrote this book out of this experience, and it is uh, the first book by a woman writer in English that we know of, which is super cool. Mm -hmm. And it also is this magnificent work, both as like a narrative, like writing wise, it's really beautiful, but it also has this really rich theology. And what happened to Julian afterward and where somebody like Janina Ramirez might Mm -hmm. have trouble following, because it is so weird, is this, uh, is that Julian became an anchorite. And an anchorite is uh, something that being an anchorite is something that people did in the Middle Ages, uh, men or women, but more so women, where they actually chose to enter a cell on the side of a church and um, were were often, we think, uh, walled in to the cell. Mm -hmm. They had windows. They could see out everything. But they were... um, Actually, when they made these vows and went into this cell, the uh, prayers for the dead were said over them. So they were dead to the world, but somehow still embedded in the fabric and life of their church. So Julian entered into St. Julian's in Norwich in medieval England and became an anchorite there. And that was where she spent the rest of her life. Yeah contemplating, meditating, praying for other people. She was very embedded in the life of her Mm -hmm. community. That was one of her main roles was to pray for folks coming. And you mentioned Marjorie Kemp. Marjorie Kemp actually visited her and needed prayers, needed advice. And um, and then she wrote this magnificent book. And that's kind of most of what we know about her. Her life is pretty mysterious. Yeah, I love the Kemp you know, cameo that Julian makes. Cause it's like, Whoa, another medieval writer. You just feel like they, they couldn't have known each other, you know, like these, they all exist only in their books and we, totally. we distance ourselves from their world. So seeing them interact, you're like, Oh, they were real. <laughs> they, they walked and they had flesh and blood. And, um, why, I mean, for me, I didn't read, I didn't read Julian until grad school. And it was when I was, uh, teaching great texts and, I remember I was, I felt so dumb, but my advisor was saying, you have to teach a woman in your medieval class. And I was like, say what? Like, (laughs) like I, I would have just taught like Augustine up to Reformation to Luther. And I would have not taught a single woman divine comedy, Beowulf, you know, that's, you know, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Like those are the worlds uh, that I, I knew as medieval literature. Why do you think it is that we don't get introduced to Julian? I mean, it's becoming more in vogue, but mm-hmm. for the last 20 years, it definitely wasn't. And maybe even longer. Yeah, I think this is um, this is something really interesting. And I agree with you that um, I didn't read her till grad school either. But mm-hmm. I think this I think part of it is that um, some of these authors have been admired for a really long time. So like Dante or Beowulf, these yeah. have been um widely circulated for at least several centuries. In Dante's case, almost immediately, he was a superstar, rock star (laughs) of the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. But um, Julian's manuscripts were um, very much under the radar for a long time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so 
her manuscript transmission was different than somebody like Dante's. But also, I think because uh, for a long time, people viewed women writers um, a little suspiciously. And Julian, too, um, I read her as an orthodox writer within the Christian tradition. But Mm -hmm. I think um, there are other people who don't. And so I think she has this sort of... uh, she she definitely um, submits to uh, her mother church, as she calls it, as she mm-hmm. says it. But she's also um, pushing back against some ideas about penance, um, against some ideas about um, salvation and uh, that aren't heterodox, but are a little bit more um daring shall we say mm-hmm. um if maybe, you yeah maybe elaborate on that more so this so I find her very orthodox yes I do so, too yeah so where do you find the pushback give give us some specifics what are some ideas that she puts out there that people would have been pushing back on then or maybe even all the way to now that people still would find her uncomfortable or daring as you said yeah so one of the the major areas that I see this um a little bit of resistance is in ideas about penance. So in the medieval church, um especially at the time Julian was writing, this was uh so think of thirteen seventy three this is right after thirteen forty eight and forty nine the Black Death, which mm-hmm. completely decimated Europe. A lot of people thought that it was punishment from mm-hmm. God for um sins. And so during this era and um, before the Black Death as well, but it was even heightened after, there was a lot of interest in um, in penance and in penitential practices and in sort of this language of like how dirty and foul humankind is. And a lot of that um, Julian fully agreed with. She talks about how sin is the most vile thing in the world and how it's truly horrible but she also writes in other places that our living here on earth is penance Mm -hmm. um, pushing back against this really elaborate uh penitential tradition that was really highly developed in the middle ages that taught that you um needed to um basically uh to, to brutally simplify it it's much more complicated and and uh fruitful in a lot of different ways than what I'm making it out here. But mm-hmm. that the idea that you really needed to punish yourself for your sins um, mm-hmm. is what she's pushing back against in a way that is perfectly orthodox, but in a way that would have been received um, with a raised eyebrow by some people at that time, if that makes so sense. Com- combine that with what we know from her showings. So she receives these showings on the sickbed that she prayed for Yes. Because she wanted to suffer like Christ. So not in a way of being penitent, right? Like she didn't want to repent through the suffering. Why then is she praying to have the sufferings? I mean, this is just such a different idea than 21st century Christianity that you would pray to suffer like Christ. Well, this is actually, I think, always one of the most interesting parts of the showings to have a conversation about is that she actually begins her showings with that idea. Mm -hmm. I prayed, um, I prayed to see bodily the cross of Christ and because because she wants to suffer alongside the Blessed Mother, alongside Mm -hmm. Mary Magdalene and St. John and all those folks, she wants to share in Christ's sufferings and their sufferings. Mm -hmm. And in this prayer, she's belonging to a huge tradition in the middle ages, which is um, this kind of idea of imagining yourself at the foot of the cross so that you can really feel the, both the love of Christ and feel the real impact of, of the crucifixion and of its power and of its devastation. And also so that you can feel um, compassion for one another out of the cross of Christ. We learn how to have compassion on each other and, care for one another in our sufferings, and also to learn um, contrition, which is the idea that you regret your sins and you do feel really bad for what you have done in your life, the things that you have done and the things that you have left undone. And Mm -hmm. so all of this is in a package together. And Julian believes in all of that. Um, And that doesn't change. Contrition, not penance. Penance is the uh, the sort of total package, the sacrament in the Middle Ages that begins with contrition and then um, 
and then goes to confession. So confessing mm-hmm. your sins to a, to an anointed priest and then ends in um, penitential action or prayers or sometimes things like a pilgrimage. If you think of Jeffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, that's all based on actually this late medieval theme of penance and penitence. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, Julian is kind of pushing back against this idea that you need to um, do a lot of actions. So we think of like the most stereotypical medieval, like bad reputation stuff of penance, like self-flagellating or well, wearing hair ascetic. shirts. She's not ascetic. I mean, she's Marjorie no. Ray is ascetic. So she's not, right. Julian's not ascetic, but she no. doesn't want to feel spiritually the pains of Christ so that it brings her to that place of contrition. Yes, exactly. And her, her penance is more contemplative. Yes. Yeah. And so she's making an argument that our living here is penance. If we are um, paying attention and listening uh, and looking okay. upon our wounded savior on the cross. And so that, um, and as she writes this um, beautiful contemplation of we're actually in her first showing mm-hmm. in her uh, sick bed, the cross that the priest is holding in front of her. This was a, a common practice in the middle ages to hold a crucifix above your bed as you were suffering and ill or in childbirth or in any sort of travail like that. Um, that crucifix crucifix actually comes alive. Yeah, it starts bleeding. It starts bleeding in this very, very detailed bodily, um, so much blood, so much pain, so much suffering. So she's not pushing away like, oh, we should turn away from that. We should not pay attention to what's happened with sin, to um, Jesus's suffering on the cross. But that deeper than the message of you should feel so bad about yourself and you need to do X, Y, and Z mm-hmm. um, to get in a right place with God. Deeper than that message, there's the message of this is all for you and mm-hmm. I love you so mm-hmm. much. And I and she writes of um, Christ's insistence to her that I would do this for you all over again. Mm-hmm. And I would suffer more if I could suffer more. I would suffer more if I could suffer more. Yeah, that's- Yeah, which is this this sort of- enveloping of all suffering into himself, even Julian's own suffering. So how, um, how did she conceive of sin? So one of the most known lines might be that sin is befitting. Yes. Which is hard to translate and you know, the middle English. So can you give us the middle English and tell us the problems with this and like, how does she understand sin? Yeah. This is one of the ways that I think Julian has been misinterpreted. So this is a great question of like why some people might read her as heterodox when Mm. I actually totally read her within this tradition of Augustinianism. Um, but so Julian writes, uh, sinner is behovely. I love it. All shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of thing shall be well. So this is, we always like to quote that last part, right? Yeah. We always like to say all shall be well, all yeah. shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. Um, and we cut off this really confusing front part of that sin is behoovely is the word that ah. she uses, um, which is translated really differently in different translations, depending ah. on what you look at. So um, befitting is probably the best one, but some people translate it as uh, necessary, which is really weird. Um, some <laughs> some I know. people translate it as uh, what, um, like part of the plan or something. I don't know. I can't even remember, but, um, but in the middle English, it's this word behoovely, which um, means fitting. um, But it's a, it it is kind of more than that too. Um, And it's this related to this Latin idea um, about uh, the fittingness of God's plan and Mm -hmm. what Julian is uh, confused by and she questions God about this after after he says this word to her um she says how can that be since sin is so horrible we see so much death and destruction here on earth and how can you even say that um but she's seeing this sort of cosmic vision that says nothing is bigger no sin can ever be bigger or more powerful or go uh, beyond the power of God. And mm-hmm. so 
this idea that we can't see it right now. Um, but what she says in a different section, another favorite quote of mine is that um, she says uh, about God, he doesn't ever allow us to lose time. Hmm. He uh, doesn't suffer us to lose time. And what she means there is that is a very similar idea, which is that nothing is wasted in the end. Nothing is lost in the end. Um, And she can't see how that makes sense. And God promises her that someday it will, but it it doesn't make sense right now. So that's so good. Yeah. She recognizes constantly this vision that she doesn't have. It's one of the things I love about her is the ability to have humility. I mean, she regularly says like, and it was not given to me to understand this vision. And at that time it was not given to me to understand this. And I mean, she even ends the book, like this is unfinished because I don't know everything. I mean, it's real. There's a lot of humility here that you don't see in other 14th century theologians. No. And I think that's what makes Julian really special. Like I've, I've read a you know, quite a bit of medieval texts at this point. And Julian has this real sense of her limited vision and that she's been given this gift that, and we kind of are like, Julian, you've seen things that (laughs) none of the rest, like very few of us will have an experience like that. But I think that's what makes her writing ring so um, true with me is that she has, she carries with her this knowledge of her own limitations and, Um, She thinks a lot about, uh, so this is what I saw, and this is what I'm interpreting from it. Um, She makes a real strong line in her writing between what she saw and then what she's had to extrapolate for herself Mm -hmm. in the many years following as she meditated upon these showings, which is really cool. She differentiates, like you said, between what she saw and what she interprets. But she also, at some point, she says, Jesus showed to me that this vision meant this. Yes. So she also clarifies like there are some times where I'd be meditating on this and I couldn't understand it. And then Jesus revealed what it meant. Yes. Yes. And and we know that, um, I mean, this is uh, a, another really cool thing about this text is that she initially sort of immediately following this experience on her deathbed wrote a short version of her uh of her revelations that um doesn't have a lot of things in it that then she rewrites decades later into yeah. a long version and it's because in those intervening decades she spent um so much time in her anchoritic <laughs> cell mm-hmm. um praying over them meditating on them asking for the grace to understand them um and that's the fruits of it and and so i think that's another reason why she's so encouraging to read is that she's somebody who's just slowly putting things together just mm-hmm. like the rest of us in a different way and she's very honest about that you know, at that time, people would consider whether or not the visions they'd received were from God or from the devil. Yeah. And, and that's something that I don't think, I, are you Protestant? I can't even remember. Are you Protestant? I, I am Protestant. Um, I am, okay. a, an, I am a kind of, uh, a, a, I'm an Episcopalian, but I'm like okay. kind of a, uh, yes, I'm a big fan of, um, Catholicism, but I am yeah. not Catholic, but people are often confused. So well say, I mean, I know you're every, in the same boat. Yeah. Everyone thinks I'm Catholic. One church. I believe in one church. The more that we come yeah. together, the happier I am. I um, too. But one of the things that I really appreciate about the Catholic church that differs from my Protestant upbringing is this idea that when you hear a voice, you have to test whether it's God yes. or the devil. Yes. And we see this in the medieval church so clearly. And so when you look back at her short text, she doesn't just trust the visions. She waits until her confessor tells her to to write these things down. She even says, like, she puts the question explicitly out there, just because I'm a woman, should I not tell you about the things that God has shown me? You know, she's, she says the church really teaches her as a woman to be quiet. So do I be quiet? But like, I've received this great gift. What do I do with this? Um, So I, I love this difference between the short text and the long text that reveals something about her character, but also reveals to us how to approach hearing the voice of God or um, yes. receiving the word. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Um, I love that too, because in it, we see a little bit of her character where she is this person who 
Um, I, you know, I mentioned earlier that she's pushing some boundaries, but she's doing it so carefully and so thoughtfully um, where uh, this is where I think readings that take her as heterodox are really mistaken because um, she throughout her work shows this um, real honoring towards her teachers and towards her cultural context that in some ways feels really foreign to us today. Um, but that um, I think puts a real helpful guardrail on personal revelation that we kind of desperately need as humans who are so limited. And and you're right, um, in the Middle Ages, it was very commonly known that, um, you know, taking the admonitions of the New Testament seriously, some visions are from God and some words are not, and you're going to be deceived. And that's tricky and you have to be careful and prayerful in community. And that's what we see Julian doing. Do you mind speaking a little bit on the woman question though? So she's, she is speaking and she's trying to be Orthodox and the church tells her that as a woman, she should, she will be deceived. Right. Um, Especially at that time, they would have just assumed that a woman was going to be not only deceived, but deceptive. Right. And so these kind of visions would have been not trusted by the majority. Do you mind talking more about that? For sure. So this is kind of a double-edged sword um, because on one hand, what you've said is all totally true. Um, There is a very strong tradition um, that read Eve as sort of the only cause of the fall and that all trouble in the world was from women and that women were way more likely to lie Mm -hmm. and to lie to themselves or just be plain too stupid to understand the difference was really what a lot of people felt about women. Um, And so, uh, you know, crack open almost any established theologian and you're going to get at least a little bit of that on Mm -hmm. women. Some are some are better and less misogynistic and some are more misogynistic, but there's always going to be that flavor of misogyny. And so Julian was um, obviously affected by that um, just as much as anybody in her culture. And so she does say, you know, I'm a woman and, um, but I, I, I uh, still feel called to share this with you because I feel like it's not just for me, it's for everybody. Um, but by doing that, she was also following in a well-established tradition of women who um, received these uh, visions and um, sounds and sights, uh, people like Catherine of Siena, who is almost exactly Julian's contemporary um, and who had a very different social context because she was um, writing popes and you know meddling in politics. Ah. She had a very different sphere, but it was the same idea of um, this. It wasn't unheard of this this real connection in a special way to uh, the word of the Lord. Um, but it was more fraught, shall mm-hmm. we say? Um, there was more suspicion. And um, a heavy weight of determining, you know, is this authentic? Is this truthful? Am I just uh, seeking power? So somebody that we see dealing with this a lot is our friend Marjorie Kemp, yeah. who uh, <laughs> is constantly trying to persuade people. No, my my connection with God is real. <laughs> I have I've really felt these things and seen these things and know these things. And um, and she was a very polarizing figure. Um, a lot of clerics really didn't like her. She went on trial in front of the Archbishop of York at one point. And, uh, and then on the other hand, you have some who did believe her and who fully supported her and who wrote down her um, visions for her. So yeah. you really see that dichotomy there. Going and going back to to Julian, what are the things that you would say? I mean, I there's there's a few passages that stick out to me that that's what I've gained from Julian. That's what I continue to come back to um, that I don't see anywhere else that she's bringing to the table. And and I hate this idea of um, women are guilty of bad writing until we can prove that there's something that they offered us or brought to us. And I feel like that's that's kind of the common um, re- response I get from people is like, oh, well, you want to add a woman to a canon because she's a woman, right? Not because she added something to the conversation or actually provides so much for the conversation. So if you had to kind of defend Juliana, like she added this, what are some things that you think are just so, um, we just can't do without, like they are conversations that need to be had and, and passages we need to read over and over again. That's a great question. Um, 
So I have several that immediately spring to mind. And one is something I've already mentioned, uh, which is I come from an English background. I come from this literature background. And so one of the first things that I noticed and learned about Julian is what a beautiful writer she is. Um, she is one of the most talented writers of the Middle Ages, hands down, mm -hmm. um, and not not like the best woman writer, but actually yeah. one of the best writers, um, full stop. And especially if you ever uh, take the risk, go out on the limb of reading her in Middle English, um, the Middle English is spectacular. Mm -hmm. uh, she and the Gawain poet, I think, are the two yeah, must reads yes. of Middle English. Um, and there's obviously other wonderful Middle English writers, but I think on a literary level, her work is astounding. So that's one thing. On a deeper spiritual level, I think there's, oh, there's so much. For me, personally, she is the theologian of believing that the love of God will win all things in the end. And that can be read as you as a universalist kind of uh, angle, but it also doesn't have to be. She she really is careful and leaves a lot of space. But what she does believe in is that love is the last word, mm -hmm. and that this and it's not love like oh, <laughs> I think sometimes you read things and you're horrified what people like argue is love, you know. Um, but for Julian, you're like, oh, you leave Julian thinking, oh, God. I mean, so one of her one of her most beautiful, famous images is the image of Jesus as a mother. Mm -hmm. And uh, and this idea that actually to be a child of God is not an abstraction, that you really are. The way that um, that the best human parents feel about their children, the way that um, the, the preciousness and the incalculable value, that is actually a dim mirror of how God feels about us in our present bodies at this moment. And how even our falls and our failures are part of that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think for me, when I first read it, that was the part that I had never heard anyone talk about the love of God in that way. Yeah, that's that image of the hazelnut she gives, just connecting it with the mother idea. Yes. So as someone, I've lost a couple of babies. I've given birth to four living babies. And there's this moment where Julian's holding a hazelnut and she's like, God showed me that that's all that is. And yet he loves it. And she's like, how is it possible? That this is so small and you love it. And I thought of a fetus. Like I just couldn't, mm -hmm. I just thought that's what a mother feels. That's what a mother feels when everyone says like, how could you love it? It's so small. It's so tiny. Um, and yet that's what you feel. And it's overwhelming. And to me, that moment where she's looking at the hazelnut is very much connected to how she sees Christ as mother, like this ability to love something and other people can't even understand how you can love it. And it's that extensive largesse of love that, that she shows us. Yes. But yes. Can I read that last passage from, um, from please. this? Close? Yes, please do. Um, so this is the very end. She's been having this dialogue back and forth and she ends this book was begun by God's gift and grace. And it seems it's not yet completed with God's inspiration. Let us all pray to him for charity thinking, trusting, and rejoicing for this is how the Lord wants us to pray. And then she ends after 15 years, my spiritual understanding received answers to my questions for I long to know what the Lord meant. I received an answer. Do you want to know what the Lord meant? Know well that love was what he meant. Who showed this to you? Love. What did he show? Love. Why did he show it to you? Love. Hold fast to this and you will know and understand more of the same, but you will never understand or know anything from it for all eternity, which I just think is so, it's so gorgeous. Like she asks everyone, she, I mean, she gives credit to the beginning of the book to God's grace. She says that like the whole time she's been writing it, she's been praying for trying to understand it. And at the end, the understanding is love, right? Um, it's, it's not the knowledge that puffs up her at the end it's the love that pours out and is not completed and 
the thing that she will discover and question for all eternity is that love. Oh, I just think it's gorgeous. I love that ending. I love it because it perfectly captures the unend the, the the fact that none of this is concluded, right? We we have so many questions. We live in so much confusion. That's not going to go away, and that's okay. But that there's a she's modeling for me this trust that no matter it, I mean it's that it's just that same idea that no matter where you go in the end you're going to run up into the love of God in the end there's not a place where you can run there's not a place where you can hide but that the love of God is already there and present to you and I love I love how she says that well I hope I hope more people pick up this book and are able to really dive in to to discover you know, how she shows us God as mother, the the sufferings of Christ. Um, there's even a demon that visits. You can <laughs> read that. He's very stinky. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, I know we're closing up, but I actually had a student do a presentation on Julian and she passed out these uh, black cupcakes with red spots all over them <laughs> because that's how the demons described. And so she starts her presentation by passing out cupcakes. Um, so we all had like a visual aid. <laughs> of the that's devil. very funny. <laughs> yeah. But please do pick up this book and even more also or going with it I wouldn't say even more like who's gonna <laughs> no pick Julian over me right, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you're, like, you're like me the two of us are, are you know I love friends who point towards reading books other than their own book and that's the reason I wrote Scandal of Holiness was like read these other books and even reading for the love of God I write on Julian like read these other books and your book does that so Jesus through medieval eyes says, read these other books because we all love the Lord. And here's all these great saints that are going to help us on our way to loving the Lord more. So do also pick up Grace's book. I'll say that in addition to Julian. So thanks, Grace. I appreciate the time. Oh, thank you so much. I had a blast. This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan Podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.